0: Have you given thought, especially those of you who have been in this series with us for a while, have you given thought to how you would encourage another believer, another Christian, who was encountering or going through some real persecution? I'm not talking about them getting teased or made fun of on social media. I mean real persecution where maybe their financial livelihood is at stake. Maybe their relationship with the family is estranged, is estranged or uh, they've been ostracized and pushed out. Maybe they're facing a real threat of torture and punishment or maybe even paying with their lives... For their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. What words would you counsel them with? What would you offer them? If we were to be gathered on the Lord's Day. Maybe a day like today with other believers. And what if we knew that imminent martyrdom awaited some of us. Maybe in the coming days. And we might be seeing each other for the very last time. How would we comfort one another? How would we encourage one another? I've been thinking about that at length. And I think through our time in Revelation, we've seen lots of words of encouragement. Lots of things to comfort one another with and remind ourselves of that in the midst of all of this, look what God is doing. Look how God is preserving His Church and look at the final outcome of all things. But as we near these final chapters here, I I find these words of supreme importance and relevance as it comes to this aspect of how we would encourage one another in the face of persecution. Especially today's chapter that we are going to unpack. It would have meant the world for these first century believers to him, to whom this, this letter was written to, who are facing real persecution. It was present persecution. It's not that they might be persecuted. They, they were being persecuted. And to receive this letter and to read the words of chapter 20, what life this would have brought to them. These are the very words of God. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? These are the words of God. So they have relevance to us as well. Not just for those first century believers, but they're relevant and significant for us in our present age that we live in. We, we here in the West maybe aren't facing that kind of persecution. I believe we will in due season. But our brothers and sisters around the world have been and are and will continue to be In this state until the Lord returns. So they're going to speak to us now. And these words are going to beckon us, brothers and sisters, to hold fast to our faith and to endure until the end. So as we study chapter 20, it's going to take us two weeks to get through chapter 20 here. And and this is the main point that we will work through over the next two Sundays here. And it's this. The millennium represents the period of time of the triumph of the church in her missionary enterprise here on earth and the triumph of departed saints who are already reigning with Christ in heaven. Hear the words of the Lord, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. These are the words. Of the Lord. Now we are getting to a portion of Scripture here uh, that is subject to a variety of interpretations. In this very room, there are us here that are here today, listening to this, who maybe hold differing views as it relates to the millennium. The events leading up to the millennium, what's on the other side of the millennium, what characterizes the time of the millennium. But the thing I want you to understand as we come to this, we are not talking about this today as relations to an, as something that is central to our understanding of the gospel. In other words, you can have a differing view of what the millennium is or a different view of how the end times are going to unfold, and we don't have to divide over it. Amen? Amen. Because it isn't necessary to hold a certain one of these views to be in Christ Jesus, to be saved, to be born again. You don't have to say, I have to be a premillennialist or an amillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist to be born again. No, we don't need to know any of that. We don't need to hold to one of those to be saved. So this is not something we divide over. But I do want to say how we come to understand the events of the end time. The view that we have concerning the end times does have implications. It has consequences for how we live out our faith and how we view these things. It colors how you view and interpret the scriptures depending on your understanding of the the, the millennium and, and those events of the end time. It affects how you go about fulfilling the Great Commission. It influences how you view culture, how you view politics, how you, how you see uh, world affairs and the things that are shaping in this world and how you, the lens you look at those through and certainly what you believe to be true about the future and how it's going to unfold. So it has implications, but your salvation isn't staked or based on what you believe about that. Are we clear on that? All right. So we're not talking about close-handed doctrines here, right? Those are the things we go to war over. How we're saved, our salvation and faith through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, right? That scripture is the ultimate standard and authority over the Christian life. We, those are closed-handed issues. This is an open-handed issue. You can have a differing view here, and uh, we're not going to go to battle over that, all right? So but before we dive in here, I thought it would be good to <clears throat> give a brief overview of the four main millennial views, eschatological views about the end times, uh, so that as those words are being thrown out there, you, you have an understanding it. Maybe you've, you've to, been taught a certain way and maybe not had a, a name or a title to categorize it. This might do that for you today. Uh, but this is going to be an oversimplification of these views. Like there are people who have a, a, just a wide variation in degrees within one of these particular views, We don't have time to go through all of that. Tons of books have been written from each perspective. I'd be happy to uh, direct you to any number of those resources. So this is just going to be a quick flyby. When it comes to this. Alright so these are the four main views of the millennium. Uh, I want to thank Brian Chapel. I was able to rip his graphics off of the internet. So I didn't have to create my own. Uh, it makes it a lot easier here. But uh, the first is this. This is the historic premillennial view. The historic premillennial view. Now we look at the, the prefix there. Of premillennial is pre. That means before. And in this view Christ comes before this Thousand years, this millennium, but after the tribulation, right? So that's kind of what this symbolizes over here. This is the church age here of the church's proclamation of the gospel. Then there's the time of the tribulation. Most premillennialists look at this as a seven year period. Some look at it as a more extension, as Daniel's 70th week. Some look at this as a longer period, more symbolic. And then the rapture of the church is simultaneous with the return of Jesus Christ, which initiates the millennial reign. And in that millennial reign, Christ will be physically ruling on the earth here for a thousand years. You know, on a literal throne in the city of Jerusalem. And there's an important reason for that. And it has to do with Old Testament promises that have yet to be fulfilled literally concerning ethnic Israel. All right, so th- this is one of the, the main understandings uh, of this particular view. Uh, this view emerged within the first couple of hundred centuries of the church. Uh, a lot of the leading church fathers, um, like Irenaeus and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Papias, there in this first couple of hundred years or so, held to some form of this premillennial view. Uh, they were called Kiliists, from the word Kiliasm, it's the Greek word for. They believed that Christ would come, uh, and, and then he would establish a literal 1,000-year uh, physical reign on the earth while he fulfilled things concerning ethnic Israel. A view that uh, is somewhat along this line but, but has some great deviation from it is the dispensational premillennial view. Okay? It's also premillennial in the sense that Christ is coming, right, right? Uh, at some point here before the millennium, but here Christ comes before the tribulation period. This is the church age, which in this view is a parenthesis. God had been dealing with Israel, and then there's a pause in God's redemptive plan in history concerning ethnic Israel for the ingathering of the Gentiles. There's fulfillment of all of Daniel's prophecies of the 70th week here, uh, leading uh, up to... A great falling away, and then the secret return of the Lord, which initiates a secret rapture of the church before the tribulation period, right? And then you have the seven years of tribulation. Some hold to uh, a view of the rapture happening during the tribulation, maybe mid-tribulation, towards the end of the tribulation. And then we have the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, dispensational premillennialists interpret Revelation in a very literal fashion. Right? They see this a lot as sequential events happening as the visions unfold to John through Revelation, uh, and Christ is going to be physically ruling, and specific promises that have been made to ethnic Israel will be fulfilled during Christ's millennial reign. During the millennial reign is when they see Satan as being bound during that period. Uh, So that ethnic Jews will come to Christ in in droves, right? And the fulfillment of all of those things. After which, Satan was loose for a little while. There's the Battle of Armageddon. Christ destroys Satan. The resurrection uh, of the unbelievers to the throne judgment. And then the new heavens and the new earth. This, uh, uh, This particular view here is the new kid on the block, all right? It's a new kid on the block. And I want you to, I'm going to spend a little time here because this is the dominant view held by uh, Western American evangelicalism today, all right? And has been for quite a few, quite a few decades here now. Um, Fact, you might be surprised to know that this view was not widely taught in the church at all prior to the 1800s, whereas premillennialism dates back to the early church. Not the next view that we're going to look at here in a few moments, amillennialism uh, was a view held all the way back from around the third century forward. Many of the reformers held to that view. This is relatively new, less than 200 years, and you might be surprised to know that because if you came up in the church systems that I did, this is kind of all that you were taught concerning, to, concerning this. Now, uh, dispensationalism, dispensation means ages, uh, and this particular... Uh, method of biblical interpretation sees God's redemptive plan unfolding through seven successive dispensation or ages, where God would reveal a little bit more about his plan. Your first was innocence, right? Uh, From Adam to the fall, and then from the fall through Noah, and then from Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to Christ, the period of grace, and then the kingdom that will unfold during the millennial reign. And through that, God was showing how he was going to redeem uh, Israel and the Gentiles. In this particular view, there is a radical discontinuity between Israel and the church. They are not the same. A dispensational premillennialist will look at the scripture and read Israel and Revelation and say, Ah, that's ethnic Jews. In fact, they don't even see the church in most of Revelation especially in this time frame here. The church has been gone here. All of this now is concerning God's dealing with Israel in this particular view. Now, this view was first developed as a system of biblical interpretation in the early 1800s by a Plymouth Brethren preacher, John Darby. You may have heard the name. He systemized his teaching, put it together, began to to teach that in different places. And it was picked up by, the, uh, by a man by the name of C.I. Schofield. Who was compiling a study Bible. And so he incorporated Darby's dispensational teaching throughout the reference notes that he was putting together. And his Bible was published in 1909. Its first publication called the Schofield Reference Bible. Some of you might have that. Even to this day I had it up till probably about 15-20 years ago. I had an edition of the Schofield uh, Reference Bible. Now, the accessibility of this particular study Bible uh, to the common man who now had something with notes to kind of understand the scripture, right? It didn't have to be very educated. Now, to understand certain of these things uh, caused the teaching of dispensationalness to spread quickly throughout the United States. In just several years, about 3 million copies Think about this, the early 1900s, three million copies of the Scofield Reference Bible had been sold in the U.S. So this quickly became the dominant teaching in American evangelicalism during that time. In 1978, another individual created a study Bible based on the dispensational uh, uh, interpretation of Scripture, and that's Charles Ryrie. You might be familiar with the Ryrie Reference Bible. Some of you may have that as well. Again, throughout the notes, it's based on Darby's and Schofield's teaching on dispensationalism. Uh, in uh, 1970, a book that some of you probably read, The Late Great Planet Earth, came out. I mean, it had a million printings from 1970 on. By 1990, it had sold 28 million copies. And how Lindsay's work there on the end times was strictly based on a dispensational premillennial interpretation of the end times. So you can imagine that spread quickly. And again, it remains the dominant view among conservative evangelicals, among most charismatics, among most Pentecostals in the West today. You have uh, fictionalized works like the Left Behind series, right, that are based on... Dispensational, premillennial, end times interpretation. And they have sold over 80 million copies of a fictionalized work on the end times that people believe to be true. Right? But it's based on this particular interpretation and system. Uh, The proliferation of TV Bible teachers. uh, Broadcast television in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. Coming from this particular perspective. Jimmy Swagger, anyone? Like every day, he was on the air with his charts about how the end time, and it was strictly from this particular view. More modern, John Hagee, right? He gets his little charts out, and he's walking you through a dispensational, premillennial, uh, pre-tribulation, rapture understanding of the end times. Pat Robertson, uh, back in the 80s, right? All of these guys. Uh, uh, Jack Van Impey, anyone remember Jack Van Impey, right? End times teachings galore. It was all based from this particular viewpoint. So you can imagine how this became entrenched in American evangelicalism as, well, this must be how the end time, this is how you're taught. Uh, one of the, the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, the assemblies of God. This is the view In fact, you cannot be ordained without holding this as one of the articles of faith that you must uh, assent to before being ordained in the assemblies. Uh, it's, it's That's how it is now. You might wonder, why is it still popular? Uh, Sam Storms in his book, "Kingdom Come," gives us some insight into this, and I generally concur with what he says here. Uh, one of the reasons this still remains so popular, aside from the fact that, you know, it's, it was everywhere for a long time here, especially in the West, uh, is that this strict literal interpretation that's used to understand difficult passages, understand Bible prophecy and those kind of things, appeals to the common Christian who was looking for answers, right, about end-time Bible prophecy. They want to know specifically what this means and the literal interpretation of Scripture found in dispensational uh, uh, this dispensational interpretation afforded them an answer that they could grab hold of. There was this appeal to the system of theology in which the Bible, Sam Storm says, Bible prophecy could be verified by reading the newspaper or watching the news. You... If you come up under the system, they told you have the Bible in one hand, have the newspaper in the other hand. So look at the world events and you can see them unfolding from the page, pages of Scripture. It's Bible prophecy being fulfilled in our time. And Why that's important is because it made people feel as if their own lives. It makes you feel like as if your own life, your, your own day-to-day experience as a Christian is part of God's, God's plan. Part of what God's doing now and what he's doing in his end-time plan, and that has great appeal to people. Right? We do want to know that we matter in this kind of all of this stuff and how God is unfolding it Had great appeal. Uh, one that, again, you may not have given much thought to, but I guarantee you quite a few of you have this particular understanding, is that the dispensationalist views unwavering commitment to Israel also makes this a strong appeal for Western evangelical Christians. In fact, when Israel became a state in 1948, many saw this as the fulfillment of end-time prophecy, the, the heralding of, a, of the new era where God was restoring Israel, restoring their land, uh, restoring them to their formal, former glory. So that has a great appeal. We've talked a little bit about Israel through our series here. And then again, uh, many influential and high-profile Christian leaders who held to the dispensational view became part of the Christian right-wing political surge of the late 70s and 80s and into the early 90s. Jerry Falwell's his moral majority, right? The dispensational premillennial interpretation of the end times is what drove a lot of the ideology for the moral majority and that surge of conservatism, but from a... Uh, American uh, evangelical perspective. And lastly, when it comes to this, frankly, it's a better story. It's a better story to tell, right, that Christians actually get to escape the tribulation. That right before the world goes to hell, before it gets bad, before all of this judgment, we're going to fly away. And that just sounds a whole lot better than having to endure And be part of it through all of that time. So it's just some of the reasons. I wanted to spend some time there because I know that's where a large number of us in this room maybe land. And I hope to persuade you continually in another direction here. The third is the post-millennial view. Post again meaning after. So here this view Christ comes after the millennium. The church age is going to be marked by, uh, incredible growth and advancement of the gospel. People, lots of people getting saved. The world becomes more Christianized. The nations are coming to Christ such that the church age ends up blending into the millennium. Okay. And the millennium is also seen as a symbolic time, not a literal one thousand years. The church age blends into the millennium. So, Christianity enters into a golden age where it would seem as almost the whole world uh, was Christianized. There, that the number of saved outnumber the lost in this particular view. The gospel triumphs to this degree. And at an appointed time, there is the end time final battle of Armageddon. And then Christ returns and initiates the things that we'll see in scripture here after the millennium. It's a highly optimistic view of how the church age, the outcome of the church age here, right? The kingdom is going to continue to grow. Evil is being suppressed and eventually saved outnumber the lost. A uh, great revivalist uh, here in, U, in the U.S. was a post-millennialist. Ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Right? This was the view he espoused and held to. And lastly is the amillennial view. Now that prefix a-a uh, means no, right? So in other words, it tr- translate no millennium, but our millennial um, uh, millennial view is really a, a, an unfortunate um, title for this view because our millennialists believe that there is a millennium. All right, it's not that they don't believe there is no millennium. It's just the view of how the millennial uh, uh, events occur. Like the post millennialists, Christ will return after the millennium. Now, if you like simple, this view is the best, right? the church age is the millennium right here is the final battle there's the return of christ the saints are raised up with christ final judgment new heavens and the new earth it's clean it's simple it's easy right um but for them the millennium is now it's the present church age from the time of the ascension to the second coming of jesus christ and christ is reigning now but it is a spiritual reign okay it is a spiritual reign on the earth. As the gospel goes forth, the kingdom of God is growing. The kingdom of Satan is growing. They grow side by side, the wheat and the tares. And God is going to sort it all out in the end. In this view, the church is seen as the true Israel of God, not a replacement of Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel, but that the church is Israel. And it's comprised of old covenant saints and new covenant saints, all who have looked to Christ uh, Uh, for the atonement of their sins and are born again uh, in Christ Jesus. Uh, This view sees all of the promises concerning Israel to be fulfilled in the church. And it has been one of the most widely held views in the Christian church throughout the ages, especially from the Reformation forward. Those are the four main views. Now, there's a lot of nuances in any of these particular views. You might have a different way of seeing some of those things, but this is what they are. And I think one can hold to the premillennial view, the historic view, postmillennial view, the amillennial view. And you can have a consistent interpretation of, of the scripture with these particular views. I mean, we may end up in a little bit different places. But the only one I'd caution you against is that dispensational premillennial view. Right? Um, for a variety of reasons. But the first is what I've seen over the last several decades of this. It lends towards escapism. It's a very pessimistic view, you know, it it creates a body of people who don't want to experience suffering of any kind, you know, and so when the world gets bad, the attitude is run to the hills, isolate, that's why you have Jim Baker on TV selling his, you know, buckets of food, right, so that you can go hide in the mountains, frankly, I saw that in the 80s. I've seen it in the 90s. Right? We see it through all of this. Every time one of these guys comes up with a date for the return, what do these Christians do to believe that? Oh, we've got to lock ourselves away. It's going to get really bad. Okay? So it leads towards that. It's fear. There's this discontinuity also between Israel and the church that frankly results in people with some really wonky theology. All right? We don't have time to get into all of that, but I would be glad uh, to answer any questions you have uh, offline here on that. All right, so how are we to understand then chapter 20? All right, how do we understand what's going on here? Because I believe this passage lends towards an amillennial interpretation, which I hope to show you through this. I haven't used that word through our series, uh, but I think you can guess that's kind of where we've been here. We've been interpreting Revelation a very particular way. Now, it's important, I want you to see that John has two distinct visions in chapter 20 here, all right? Two distinct visions that reveal things that characterize the millennial period. Both have to do with the church, the church on earth and the church in heaven. And you're going to see that as we go through today's text and next week. Now, the only reference to a thousand years, or what we call the millennium, uh, is found in chapter 20. You can search all through your Bible You're not going to find a 1,000 years anywhere else. There's nowhere else in Bible prophecy here that you're going to see a reference like this to a 1,000 years. It's just not there. So we're going to get to what that means here in a moment. But how you interpret the Bible plays a huge role in how you understand the end times. If you read the book literally, like some of these views look at for these things, you're going to end up one place. If you re- read it symbolically and largely figuratively, like we have been looking at, we're going we're to end up in another place here, okay? We don't end up in the same place concerning the events of the end times here. Now, we've been looking at Revelation as a picture book full of symbols and and figures and images and numbers and all of these things that are drawn from Old Testament passages. In fact, 1,000 is the only thing that you're not going to find in the Old Testament in Revelation. Everything else has been there. Found in Daniel's writing, Ezekiel's, Isaiah's, Zechariah. We've seen these particular images, the Exodus account. So we've also been stressing that the visions are not to be understood as happening chronologically. It's not a sequential timeline that we're being shown here, okay? We have been seeing these as parallel symbolic visions. In fact, seven of them found in Revelation. And what we're looking at is the same events from different perspectives. John is seeing these things and he's writing them down and they're showing us the same events, similar events happening from a different camera angle. We get different uh, pieces of information each time we shown the same event. At the close of chapter 19, which we saw the return of Christ last week. His return with his army. And the armies of the world were gathered to make war against the Lamb and against his army. And what happened? They were instantly defeated. Right? They were defeated. The beast and the false prophet were captured. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And we're told at the end of 19 that the rest of humanity that worshipped the beast... What happened to them? They were killed. No one was left. There was that great invitation to the great supper of God where God summons the birds to feast upon the deceased, the dead. All the kings of the earth, all the mighty men, all the slaves, all of the captains, every single rich and poor, everyone who worshiped the beast and had the mark of the beast is obliterated. That's the end of chapter 19. That's the final battle. Now, in the premillennial view, if you hold to that, we come to chapter 20. These events must necessarily follow that final battle. We come to chapter 20, and so this has to happen next. Christ sets up his kingdom, but then what do we see in chapter 20? Another final battle at the end of the millennium. Another final. We just had a final battle. Everyone was killed, but then now we have another final battle where the armies of the world are Gathered together here. We've seen this several times already. How many final battles are there going to be? There's only one. Yeah. There's only one final battle. Hence, final. That's why this, in these passages, in the original language, the Greek, sometimes we don't have the definite article, the, there, but it's there in the Greek. It says, the war. Ho polemos. It is the war. The final battle. We've got six of them in Revelation. You telling me that six different No, they're not. They're all the same one, but we're seeing him from different angles here. Look at this. In chapter nine, right, the final battle where the armies of the world are gathered as one to destroy the church. We've seen it, they're depicted at the sounding of the sixth trumpet. In chapter 11, where the beast is going to make war on the witnessing church to conquer and kill her. That's chapter 11, verse 7. In chapter 16, we see that with the pouring out of the sixth bowl. Chapter 17, the kings of the earth hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they make war on the lamb. Chapter 19, we just looked at last week. And now in chapter 20, verse 7 here, we have the final battle scene again. So chapter 20 cannot be a chronological movement forward from chapter 19. It is doing something we have seen before. This is what we call recapitulation, a recycling of these themes. Chapter 11 and 12 are a great example for that. Uh, when, When we looked at the close of chapter 11... Okay, with the seventh trumpet, but we have this heavenly scene now where the 24 elders are worshiping God before the throne. They fall down on their face before the throne, right? And what do they do? They're worshiping God, declaring this, that the time for the dead to be judged has come and for the servants of the Lord to be rewarded. And then we have the characteristic symbols of the final battle and final judgment. Earthquakes, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, right? It's the end. It's the end. So you'd expect chapter 12 to be the new heavens and the new earth, right? Here it is in glory. But it's not. Chapter 12 now rewinds this to the ancient battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We have now the vision of the woman and her child, right? She's pregnant. And the great red dragon. Well, that's not sequential. We're getting the prequel here now. Right. When you were younger, right, you watch episodes four through six of Star Wars. You're like, this is awesome. That's it. There's, And all of a sudden, they threw out one to three. That took us all the way back to the beginning. We could argue whether those were good or not. Some of them were. Some of them weren't. And then all of a sudden, we got flung to the future, right? Episodes seven through nine, which should never have existed. But that's beside the point. Right? We, we know those kind of things happen, right? This is what Revelation is doing. to We cannot read it sequentially and chronologically because it's not what it's doing here, okay? So so we, we, we see this as a recapitulation. And verses 1 through 6 of chapter 20 are a recapitulation of the church age, the the entire New Testament period. At the end of 19, all the armies of the world are gone. They're obliterated. No one's left. So how now can we have a statement here that Satan is going to be able to deceive the nations? What nations are left? We just—they're gone. There's no one left. Starting in 27, then we have the recycling of the final battle scene, and we will go into that a in little more detail next week. Because on the focus of this chapter now is about the destruction, the defeat, and the demise of Satan. Last week we saw the defeat and the demise. Of the beast and the false prophet. And prior to that it was of Babylon and her fall. Each one of those was introduced in that order. The great red dragon, Satan. The beast and the false prophet. And then Babylon. And now they are exiting the stage of history in reverse order. Babylon's fallen. We saw then the demise of the beast and the false prophet. And in chapter 20 now we see the defeat of God's... Of of the ultimate enemy of God and his people, right? This great red dragon, all right? So this is what's happening here. Uh, I just want to lay that foundation so that we are clear on what's taking place and we don't get thrown by this kind of stuff here. This is apocalyptic literature. That's its genre. It's not easy. It's a lot of symbols, and this is why you need to know the Old Testament, right? Because then it makes a little more sense. All right, so what are the things that characterize the millennium, We're going to answer three questions. The first I'll answer really quick because we've already answered it. When does the millennium occur? We're going to also look at what is meant by Satan being bound for 1,000 years. And what does it mean for the saints to come to life and reign with Christ for 1,000 years? And we'll look at that third question next week. So we're going to see three glorious truths in this chapter. Two of which we will uh, look at today that illustrate the glorious truths presented to us in this millennial period. All right, so when will the millennium occur? We're in it. We're in it. Right now, the church age, from the ascension to the second coming of Jesus Christ, this extended period, not a literal 1,000 years, is the millennium. All right? We're in it right now. We're living in it. The early church is living in it. And up to the point of Jesus' return, we will be in this symbolic period called the millennium, symbolized by 1,000 years. So let's begin to look at these three glorious truths. We're only going to get through two today uh, to help us see what this millennial period is characterized by, its its significance, and why is it that it represents this present church age. The first glorious truth is this, that the millennium is the period of time during which the ultimate defeat of Satan is expressed in a preliminary manner, which anticipates his full and final defeat. Again, Satan, the enemy of God's people, the one who stood behind all of God's enemies, right? The beast, the false prophet, Babylon, is ultimately destroyed. And that destruction is in two stages. We have a preliminary stage here, which chapter 20 describes as Satan being bound for a thousand years. And then we have the final stage or the, Uh, The consummated stage of his destruction where we see at the end of chapter 20 that he is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Two stages, the destruction of Satan. This is what's happening here. So let's turn to the text and see how this unfolds. John uh, says here in 20 verse 1 that he sees an angel coming down from heaven. Again, this is characteristic language we've seen before angels coming down from heaven. In other passages, we get a great description of what that angel is the one standing in the sun, the one who's blazing. Some of those are the angel of the Lord, but this angel, we're not really told anything about this angel's appearance. Almost like it, really, we don't need to know that, right? Because this angel's not here to announce something like those other angels have announced whether it's the sounding of the trumpet, whether it's the pouring out of a plague, whether it's a pronouncement that's being made, this angel is going to perform an action, an act here. All right, And we're drawn immediately to something that we're told that he's holding. He's holding a key, and he's holding a great chain. The key, we're told, is the key to the bottomless pit. Some of your translations say the abyss, and the chain is something he's holding in his hand, a great chain. We don't know what kind of chain. Heavy metal chain, a leg irons, handcuffs, we don't know. It's a great chain, but the indication here is that it's in his hand, and he's getting ready to do something with it. Now, we've seen this key symbol before a couple of times already, and we've seen a reference to the bottomless pit and the abyss in the fifth trumpet. In the fifth trumpet blast, we see a star falling from heaven... And this star was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opens it, and a demonic, you know, locust-like horde comes out of there, we're told. A lot of of smoke and sulfur and and darkness, and these go out to torment the inhabitants of the earth, unbelievers, okay? Uh, So that's what we see in the fifth trumpet. We're told that that star is Satan, because towards the end of that fifth trumpet, uh, description there he's called Abaddon and Apollyon, which means destroyer. Right, this is Satan. Satan's authorized by God. It's not doing it by his own authority. God sovereignly authorized designates him to release these tormenting demons. And there's that reference. He has a key. All right, the so key is a symbol of some type of authority. All right, he's exercising an authority here. But the bottomless pit is is the abyss. It's a place where demonic beings are confined until the time of their final judgment, where they'll be cast into the lake of fire. In verse 2, now, we see what the angel does here. The action he performs is to seize the dragon. He's also called the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, right? John uses the same fourfold descriptions of our enemy, just like he's used them before. We've seen these names before. We immediately know who he's talking about. The dragon is Satan. He's the devil. He's the ancient serpent. He's a ferocious dragon. He deceives the whole world. He's a slander and accuser of the saints. Yet, listen, for all of Satan's power, all of his fury, all of the terror that he can evoke, we have an unnamed angel now. We're not told anything about him, but just seizes him and renders him impotent. Seizes him and casts him into the bottomless pit, seals it up, shuts him in for a thousand year period here. Again, we're, we're just through these these images here, given a picture of the display of the sovereign greatness and power of God. Who's Satan? Uh, you, angel. You just seize him you know, and throw him in the pit, right? Nothing. It's, and I want you to see that because of, of the language here. It's just very casually stated there. This is what he does. He sees them. Just like at the end of chapter 19, the great battle. The armies of the world are arrayed against the Lamb to destroy the church once and for all. And all we see is, and the beasts of the false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of fire. <laughs> no shots were fired. There's no battle. There's no war. There was no skirmish. It's over in an instant, right? And that's the picture we get here. Now, it says we're, he was bound for a 1,000 years. Again, not a literal 1,000 years. Symbolic, Okay. Like all of the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. We've seen that. Seven heads, ten horns, seven spirits of God, 144,000 sealed servants of God, innumerable multitudes in heaven. On and on we see these numbers and they mean something. They symbolize something here. And a thousand, right, is, is ten to the third power. It's, it's ten, the number of fullness and completeness that's used there. Ten times ten times ten. It's just giving us an indication here that this is an extended period of time. It's a fullness of an extended period of time that is going to accomplish something in God's plan and and purposes that are going to unfold in human history. And the clues that we're to take this symbolically, and not literally, are right there in the text. Just by what we've read. Is there a literal dragon here? Is there a literal key in the hand of an angel? Is there a little chain that an angel is holding that he's going to use ...to bind up a spiritual being. No. They're symbols. They, they mean things here. So, so we're not going to take this number literally... ...because the genre of this book is apocalyptic... ...and all the other numbers have been symbolic. Why are we going to do that with a thousand? We don't need to. We don't need to look at it that way. So the main question then becomes... ...why is Satan bound for a thousand years? Why is he bound for a thousand years... Now that brings us to our second glorious truth. The millennium is the period of time during which the church on earth will not fail in her missionary enterprise. The millennium is that period of time on earth where the church will not fail in her missionary enterprise. Why do we say that? Well, because the purpose for which Satan is bound is expressed clearly in the following verse. We're told that he's bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That's it. Why is he bound? So that he can't deceive the nations any longer until that extended period of time comes to its intended conclusion. This extended period during Satan is bound is so he cannot deceive the nations. Which tells us that prior to him being bound, what was he doing? Deceiving the nations. All right? Hold that in your mind there because now we have to understand what does that mean? In what way was he deceiving the nations? In what way is he bound and in what sense and kept from doing something that he had previously been doing? Because frankly, if we really are in the millennial period now, it doesn't feel like Satan's bound, does it? We see evil increasing. We see all sorts of craziness in the world. We still see deception, devastation, all of these things. You know, now we blame the devil for a lot of things, right, that really are our fault. You know, we like to say, oh, the devil's messing with my marriage. And I, you know, this is the prince of the power of the air. He's probably not the one messing with your marriage. Maybe there's something demonic. Maybe it's your own sinfulness. I don't know. We can blame the devil for a lot of things, and we know he is influencing and still has influence in the world. So how can we say that he is bound and kept from deceiving the nations like he has before? In what sense? Well, guess what? We don't have to guess what that means. Isn't it great when the text actually tells you? Why? Go down to verse 7 and 8. When the thousand years are ended, again, the period of time where Satan is bound, right, and kept from deceiving the nations, what happens? He'll be released from his prison and will come out to what? Deceive the nations like he'd been doing before that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Again, these are references from Ezekiel 38 and 39. That were part of the final battle scenes that we've already looked at. To what? Gather them for battle. Gather them for battle. Satan is bound and kept from deceiving the nations by by not being able to persuade them to come together in a unified manner to assault the church of Jesus Christ and to destroy her once and for all. Isn't that what we've seen continually? Why are the nations gathered against the Lamb? To destroy the church. To destroy his church. To make war against the saints. In those six battle scenes, that's exactly what we have been looking at here. And, and at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be loosed to do that very thing, deceive the nations, persuade them to come together for a final assault against the church to wipe her off of the face of the earth. It leads to the final battle, and again, the ultimate destruction of Satan and all those who oppose God. But at the present moment, he cannot do that. He's bound, he's kept, he is curtailed from that deceptive activity, the deception of The nations towards that end. So what that means is that the church of Jesus Christ cannot fail in her missionary enterprise. The church cannot be destroyed. She cannot be thwarted from completing the mission that has been given to her to disciple the nations. This is good news. And this is why proper biblical theology is important, brothers and sisters. That you know the story of the Bible. That you understand the thread that unites the scriptures here. And what God is doing in redemptive history. Because when you have that, you come to this and you go, okay. I can make a little bit of sense of this. Stick with me here, please, for the next few moments. Prior to Pentecost. Prior to the outpouring of the Spirit, right? And the church now in the power of the Spirit. Going forth to proclaim the gospel and herald the good news. God only dealt with Israel. God was not making himself known to the nations of the world. What are we told? God chooses for himself a people. He chooses for himself Israel. A nothing nation, a nobody people, with nothing to offer him, but just because he sets his affection on them, his love on them, and he chooses to deal with them. He chooses them, he says he's going to be their God, right? He he protects them through their sojourn in the wilderness. He makes promises to them of, of a land that he's given to them, the land of Canaan. He gives to them his law, he reveals to them his nature and his character. He tells them that it's through you that the Messiah is going to come into the world. Israel is to be a light to the nations. But what marked the rest of humanity during that time? If he's only dealing with Israel and not dealing with the nations of the world, what what did that look like? Well, what marked the rest of the world throughout all of that time of human history was an engulfing spiritual darkness. That's what marked and characterized the nations of the world. These nations were filled with, with idolatry and paganism. Right? We read that over and over again in the Old Testament. This is why God found those practices detestable, but God was only working with Israel. God was only dealing with Israel. God was only revealing himself to Israel. All of the nations of the world, with the exception of Israel, were shrouded in a thick veil of darkness and deception. But God promised that that would change. Right, So we have biblical promises and prophecy like Isaiah 9, holding forth this great promise that the child who will be born, the Messiah, said of him, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. See that terminology, the land of deep darkness? That's what characterized the nations of the world. And God is saying a light is going to come to them. John declared in his gospel that Jesus, who was the true light which was coming, who gives light to everyone. Remember that scene where Simeon holds little baby Jesus on the eighth day when he's presented in the temple? What does he declare as he's blessing God? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Not Israel, right? Everybody else, us, right? Satan had deceived the whole world, blanketed the whole world in darkness. But now the undeceiving of the nations was beginning with the coming of the Messiah. Light pierces the darkness. When? Well, in Jesus' ministry, we begin to see what? Gentiles coming to faith. He was sent for the lost sheep of Israel, but what do we see? The Magi, right? When they come to Jesus, these were not. These were Gentiles. The Roman centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, right? Like this is starting to break out over here all of a sudden in Jesus' earthly ministry. We come to Pentecost and you have people from every nation, right, of the empire. They're gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And now the Holy Spirit just breaks out upon his church and they hear the mighty works of God, the, the, the marvelous deeds of God being proclaimed and heralded in their own language, right? People are getting saved and these people scatter back out to their, to their peoples to bring the good news, right? The gospel begins to go forth. You have Paul, an apostle of the Lord, and now becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. Right? He's preaching to all these Gentile nations in Asia Minor and throughout Europe and all of these areas. Right? Powerful stuff is happening. Uh, And uh, while he's preaching in Iconium, there in Acts chapter fourteen, he declares this: that the gospel, uh, 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 the gospel that in past generations God allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, but he's not allowing that any longer. This is the good news he's bringing. There was a time, hey, God, was, God wasn't even dealing with you. You weren't on, his, on the roadmap of redemption back then. That was that time. This is a different one now. A door of faith was now open to the Gentiles. In Acts 17, Paul is at Athens, and he proclaims the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Hey, pagan nations, there was a time God overlooked what you were doing. He didn't deal with you, but no longer. Now he's calling everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, to faith in Jesus Christ and repentance. And what happens? The gospel spreads like wildfire throughout the known world. It spreads out to Africa and parts of Europe, like, by extension of the centuries to the Americas, right? And now to all the nations of the world. The undeceiving of the nations had begun. Why was that possible? Because Satan was bound. Satan was bound for the duration of the church's missionary enterprise to preach the gospel to the whole world, to the nations of the world. He cannot thwart the mission of the church. He cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He cannot deceive the nations to come together to destroy the church. This is why Jesus could said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Why? Because Satan's bound. He's bound from deceiving the nations. They won't prevail against the church to destroy her. Then he says in Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. The nations of the world are coming to Christ. Why? Satan is bound. Satan is bound. You realize the only reason you've come to faith is because Satan has been bound? I bet you've never thought of that. You're not an ethnic Jew. Maybe one of you is. We're Gentiles. We were alienated from the promises, the covenant promises of God. God in His mercy and grace extended this to all nations. And the reason we can hear the gospel and have the gospel proclaimed to us it's because Satan has been bound. When did that happen? When was he bound? Well, we can see the beginning of that in Jesus' earthly ministry. I'm going to go through this quick in the last few minutes here. So hang on with me. All right. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72, right, to go preach the gospel, to heal the sick, right, perform signs and wonders in his name. It's a short term mission trip. They make their way back. They're elated. They're ecstatic. That's the success they've encountered. Jesus, even demons are subject. To, to to us in your name, we were able to cast them out. What does Jesus say? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Speaks of Satan's fall, which we've already looked at in Revelation chapter 12, right? It's the same event. He sees that in direct relation to the missionary enterprise he had just sent his disciples out to engage in. The preaching of the gospel. In John chapter 12, Jesus addresses his disciples who, who, who approached him saying, Hey, there's some Greeks out there that are looking for you. Greeks are Gentiles, right? They, they want to speak to you, right? They were interested in Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. We saw that in chapter 12, right? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth... Will draw all people to myself. Do you see that? He speaks of Satan being cast out in direct relation to the advancement of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because Satan is cast out, he's saying here. Because he can no longer deceive the nations like those from Greece there. I will draw all people to myself. They cannot be prevented from coming to me. Matthew 12, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of, of casting him out by Beelzebub, by Satan, right? And Jesus says, hey, he knows their thoughts. He goes, Satan can't cast out Satan by Satan, right? He, he'd be divided if he do that. But what does he say here? How can someone enter a strong man's house to rob him if he doesn't first bind the strong man? That word bind is the same word as we're talking about with Satan being bound in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus can cast out the demon from that man because Satan has been bound. He can plunder his kingdom because he's been bound, right? We see that in Jesus' ministry there. Satan's scheme of deception to keep the nations in complete darkness has been curtailed by the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Satan still has influence because that's not what being bound means here. He can still do evil. He can still devastate churches, right? There's horrific things he can do, but what he cannot do is mount a comprehensive offensive to prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations by destroying the church of Jesus Christ. He cannot do that. I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, oh, the church and America are going to be destroyed. No, she's not. Oh, the church in the world is, oh, she's going to be obliterated. Oh, in the next few years, there's not going to be a church. Come on now. Satan's been bound. He cannot prevail against the church. Now, there's going to be a time when he's going to be loose for a little while. And it will appear as if the church is coming to an end. But that time is not now. This is the gospel age. This is the millennium. We saw this in chapter 11 with the two witnesses. That symbolized the, the the witnessing church of Jesus Christ. They were granted authority to prophesy for 1260 days. Symbolic number, 42 months, times, time, times, and half a time. And now a thousand years, all referencing and referring to the church age. So they're out there providing the witness to Christ. They're testifying him of him on an evangelistic mission. And until that task is completed, they cannot be killed. In chapter 11, what would happen to those who tried to kill the two witnesses or harm the two witnesses? It said fire would come out of their mouth to consume them. Right? It's divine protection upon the church on her missionary enterprise. Nothing could stop the church. And that's what we see here in chapter 20 with the binding of Satan. The gospel will not fail, brothers and sisters. It is time for us to have a robust gospel. It cannot fail. The salvation of the nations cannot be thwarted. The Great Commission will be accomplished. Do you believe that? Do you see that here with the binding of Satan? This undeceiving of the nations is in full force. From Calvary onward, Satan is bound. You ever walk by a gate, man, and there's a ferocious dog barking, right? And thankfully, you realize, oh, he's on a chain, right, with a big metal pole in the ground. That thing is yapping, and it's trying its best to come and lunge at you. But every time he tries to come forward, he's yanked back, right, by this chain that restrains him to the post. And we need to begin to see that reality like this. Jesus has Satan on a leash. And he could bark and he could try to launch an assault. But guess what? Jesus goes, yanks him right back. That's what this picture is here. That, that's the image presented to us here of Satan being bound for this entire period. Satan cannot prevent anyone that Christ is drawing to himself from being saved. What confidence would that give you to know that? This is guaranteed by the Lord. Anyone whom Christ is drawing, the Father draws to the Son, it's going to be saved. Satan cannot prevent that. He cannot prevent the advance of the gospel. We cannot fail in our mission to which we've been called. So what are we to do with that? Yes, preach. Preach the gospel. Like We're to give our life for that. We're to give our life to that. Nothing in the world is guaranteed like the missionary enterprise of the church. We cannot fail. We cannot fail. God has not promised that your business will succeed. God has not promised that your marriage won't be without challenges. God has not even promised that your children will not go astray. Or that relationships will fray and fall apart. None of that is guaranteed. What is guaranteed here is that the gospel will prevail, the church will prevail. Some of you in this room, God may call to cross the oceans of the world to go preach the gospel in other nations. And I implore you to to obey that if that's what the Lord is doing in you. But I can tell you this every single one of us in this room has been given the mission of crossing the street. To preach the gospel to our neighbor, and no one is exempt from that. And we do it with the confidence that the mission will not fail. will Will not fail. It will not fail. And if you're killed for preaching the gospel, if you're killed for your allegiance to Jesus Christ, well, then, brothers and sisters, the benefits of the glory. Of the millennium for the saints that have departed to be with the Lord is far greater than you can imagine. And that's the third glorious truth that we will look at next week.